Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. So being uh, obviously asleep means like you're going to be either in that non-REM sleep or that, that rapid eye movement sleep. And Sometimes in the early morning, I don't know if you've ever, hopefully it's not just me, but you in the early morning, we have these sort of crazy dreams, like they're super vivid. That is going to be, that's that rapid eye movement sleep. So one of the things that we, one of the things that we know is with declining estrogen is that we will spend less and less time in that rapid eye movement. And you also see this in the elderly, right? Where they can start to go to bed later, but then they start to wake up earlier and earlier and earlier, which of course means that they're cutting off that REM sleep, which is typically we see a lot of that REM sleep in the morning, like right before we right before we wake up. Hey, hey, Bettys. Welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. So here's what we're going to do today. Today is a solo episode. It's just going to be you and me. And what I want to talk about is sleep. And we've had Dr. Michael Bruce on the show in the past where there have been a ton of actionable items. There has been a great discussion with him. I think he is a fabulous clinical psychologist who knows quite a bit about sleep and the permutations of sleep. And what I want to do today is to actually do a deep dive into the mechanisms around sleep, how some of the hormonal permutations and fluctuations as we move into perimenopause and menopause change. And then of course, some of the, uh, we'll say strategies and tools that you might employ and think about as we are navigating our 40s and our 50s and beyond. So one of the things that I often find when I am interviewing guests is that I am, I call myself little miss overprepared. So I have all of these notes on mechanisms. I have all of these notes on pathways. And of course, when you get into the conversation with a guest, they already know all that stuff. So they kind of want to skip over that to the good, the clinical, the clinical juiciness, which I totally get. And I want to take some time with you today to talk about some of the mechanisms around sleep, what is actually happening, and then maybe also potentially alleviate some of the, we'll call it orthorexic stress that can arise from thinking that we're not sleeping perfectly. There's been a lot of discussion over the last several years around the benefits of sleep. Of course, ask any mother, you know, how important sleep is, and she'll tell you very for both her child and herself. But what I want to do is I want to go through some of the mechanistic pathways, what's happening in the brain. I want to explore the hormones, particularly our sex hormones. I want to talk about how progesterone changes in perimenopause, estrogen, testosterone. We'll explore a couple other ones that you may or may not have heard uh, before. We're going to talk about growth hormone. I want to talk about vasopressin, uh, which is which is essentially the antidiuretic hormone. So we're basically going to go on this big geeky magic carpet ride together on sleep for perimenopause and menopause. So Let's begin. 
I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health. The list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. All right. So I wanted to, in preparing today's episode, just take you through a journey around what actually happens when we're sleeping. And the way that I would like you to think about sleep is the, it is the first line of defense when we are thinking about health. So if we don't have sleep, and I talk about this in the Betty Body, if we don't have sleep, literally nothing else matters. So when we think about uh, humans and the way that humans sleep, because there are many different permutations in the animal kingdom, but I'm assuming that you're only concerned about human type of sleep, uh, we have two stages of sleep, right? So we have non-REM and REM. So non-REM has four stages, very cleverly and uh, very wittingly called stages one, two, three, and four. 
Stage three and four, very deep, very restorative sleep. Stages one and two are more of what we might refer to as light sleep. Um, and then we have the second category of sleep in humans called REM or rapid eye movement, which is named after kind of the bizarre, you know, you know, horizontal movement that we see uh, in the eyes that happen in REM sleep. And both of these cycles together, so the four stages of non-REM and then the stage of REM, that in total, when we, because we, we oscillate through stage one, two, three, four, and REM sleep, um, those combine to create a 90-minute sleep cycle. So every 90 minutes, your brain is going to go through non-REM and REM sleep. And then this is replayed every 90 minutes over the course of the night, let's say, or even if you're napping during the day, which we're going to talk about as well. Um, and this is kind of called the standard cycling architecture of sleep. Okay. So now that we have, we know that there's two stages of sleep. I also want to talk about what is actually happening, right? So I, I started off by saying this is the first line of defense for, um, for our immune system, for our health and for our longevity. And basically there, I mean, there are many things. One of the things I wanted to highlight is what happens in the brain when we sleep. So there is kind of this sewage system, if you will, uh, called the glymphatic system, which you may have heard of the lymphatic system in the body, which is involved in sort of clearing out debris. We also have an analog in the brain called the glymphatic system. And it's, it's composed of glial cells, which are similar to in makeup to that lymphatic system that I mentioned. And that sanitation system or that clearance system kicks in in deep sleep, right? So what happens is these glial cells, so we have everybody's heard of neurons, right, in the brain. This is one type of cell that's that's encased in the central nervous system. We also have glial cells, which are support system. They're almost like the immune system cells in the central nervous system. They can shrink um, by a, a very large amount, like 150 to 200, you know, to 200%. And that kind of makes room for uh, a fluid called the cerebrospinal fluid to sort of fill the brain and kind of wash out sort of the metabolic debris, if you will, uh, that happens during wake wake time. So that's including those tau tangles, those beta amyloid plaques that we all sort of fear when we're talking about things like Alzheimer's disease. And so the cerebral spinal fluid almost comes in and gives the brain, like I almost think of it like a car wash, you know, like when you're driving the car through, there's all this like bubbly soap and liquid and, and things, and maybe there's not soap, but you know, when, when we're thinking about this in the context of sleep, we have these glial cells that shrink and then the CSF, the cerebral spinal fluid is going to come in and it is going to now wash the brain of kind of the metabolic debris um, that we accrue uh, as a result of being awake for the, you know, the 12, 14, 16, whatever hours is that we're awake that day. And so when we're thinking about sleep, there's sort of four main pillars that we want to be thinking about in terms of optimization of sleep. So one is regularity. So the consistency of your schedule. Um, so what time are you going to bed? What time are you waking up? And we'll explore each of those today. Continuity, meaning how many times are you waking up per night? So is there a continuous amount of sleep? Are we not waking up at all? Are we waking up one or two times? Are we waking up every hour on the hour? quantity, which is total amount of sleep and how much sleep we, how much time we're spending in each of those stages of sleep that I was talking about before the stage one, two, three, four and REM. And then the quality, 
right? So maybe said another way, like how, uh, you know, the, the quality of restfulness or the, you know, the electrical signature um, that sleep has on the body. And of course, um, you probably have already through your own experimentation have learned that things like uh, a late night coffee or a cup of wine or a glass of wine, I should say, uh, maybe even late night meals uh, can all have an effect on the quality of your sleep. So when we are not sleeping well, uh, and this is what I wanted to kind of talk about this in the context of perimenopause, when we are not sleeping well, the body becomes kind of ratcheted up or kind of more sympathetic dominant. I've talked about this idea before on the podcast, but very briefly, uh, within the central nervous system, we have two branches of the autonomic nervous system. So when you think of autonomic, think of just automatic, like things that happen you know, we're breathing right now, we're thinking about a posture, maybe you're digesting your last meal, you know, there's a certain heart rate, respiratory rate, oxygen perfusion and saturation. These are all controlled by the autonomic system, right? Like you're not thinking about breathing and yet you're breathing, you know, a certain amount of, you know, there's a certain respiratory rate that you maintain through the day. So within that automatic or autonomic system, we have parasympathetic and sympathetic. So sympathetic is not, uh, you know, I often joke, it's not like a state of being, like you're not feeling like, oh, sweetheart, oh, I feel so sympathetic. It's, it's not, it's sort of a misnomer. Sym the sympathetic system is what we traditionally think of as the fight, flight, freeze part of our nervous system where we see um, a lot of the blood, let's say perfusion in the body that's preferentially thrown into the periphery. So it is saved for, if you will, the muscle so that we can fight or flight, get away from or fight the proverbial tiger um, or the deer in headlights, right? We've all, maybe if you, uh, if you have gone up to the cottage or you've ever, you know, been driving on a highway um, in, in, you know, in the country, you may have seen a, a deer and once they, you know, that's as that saying goes, the deer in headlights, once they sense danger, they can often just freeze. So that's the sympathetic system. So when we are not sleeping properly, we can, the body becomes much more driven by and locked into this sympathetic nervous system. And that can, in the short term, be very advantageous for survival. But when we are chronically ratcheting up this system, it is going to lead to uh, chronic stress and inflammation. So a little bit of cortisol, a little bit of adrenaline, a little bit of noradrenaline, these things are all very important for survival. So I don't wanna demonize cortisol because cortisol is actually very, very important in terms of our you know, daily metabolic uh, thyroid function, getting us up in the morning, all the things. But when it is, when we are sort of locked into this sympathetic nervous system, this is when it can go awry, when we lack that balance, right? We lack that yin and that yang. And what happens, of course, is when we have that low-grade inflammation, when we have that low-grade stress, as I mentioned, there's the acute and the chronic. So I'm really going to focus on the chronic uh, aspect of this, like acute, just for, you know, for completeness here, acute inflammation can happen in the physical realm, the chemical realm, the emotional or spiritual realm. So like an acute physical injury might be, you know, hurting yourself at the gym, uh, spraining an ankle, you know, that kind of thing, hurting your neck, you know, waking up with a creak in the neck, that might be an acute um, representation of physical stress you know, acute chemical stress might be uh, medication that you take uh, in like a, if you're, um, you know, sick and you're taking an antibiotic or you're immunized, that kind of thing. 
uh, an emotional stress is going to be, you know, a, an acute one might be, you know, an unexpected passing, let's say, of a loved one, something like that. Chronic, which is where I really want to focus on when we're thinking about the physical aspect of it. Let's say you have a creak in the neck and you don't get it fixed. You're not seeing your chiropractor or whatever. You're you're going to now be developing these compensatory patterns of movement. So instead of turning your head 80 to 90 degrees to the right and 80 to 90 degrees to the left, maybe you're now, because you don't have that rotation, maybe now you're trying to elicit more extension, let's say. So just as an example. And now this is becoming like a nagging neck pain, nagging shoulder pain, right? Um, chemical uh, acute, or sorry, chemical chronic stress, let's say, is unknown exposure to toxins, like maybe you have mold in the home, um, especially in older homes, this is a big concern. Um, it could be a di the diet that you're following or consistent and persistent requirement of taking any kind of medication. And then the emotional, of course, chronic uh, tension and stress, as you might imagine, might be something like ongoing tension with a family member, friction with a partner, uh, your, your, um, your even, you know, maybe it's your husband or your wife, maybe it is your uh, mother, <laughs> or maybe it's even just unresolved uh, maltreatment uh, or trauma as a child, right? So this can leave residue. I like to talk about this as residue on the nervous system. Why am I talking about this? Why is this important? Well, when we have this chronic low-grade inflammation and stress, uh, it is going to affect our sleep, but it's also going to have some metabolic consequences as well. So it is going to switch you to more of an inefficient means of producing energy. So part of the reason why we sleep, right, is so that we can have energy the next day to be able to perform and live our lives to, you know, at 100% if we want to. And when we are now in this chronic state of inflammation, we are going to uh, increase something called reactive oxygen species. So we're going to increase oxidative damage. So you're going to age faster. It's going to reduce your insulin sensitivity. So insulin, again, another hormone that you have probably heard about in terms of metabolic health. It's very famously, you know, linked with type 2 diabetes, but we need insulin, right? The thyroid needs insulin, for example, to convert inactive thyroid T4, uh, inactive hormone T4 to the active form, which is T3. So insulin is actually very, very important. And when we are now in this inefficient way of producing uh, energy. So for those of you that want to know what the hell that, you know, what the heck do I mean by inefficient means of producing energy? It is basically switching us from uh, what is called oxidative phosphorylation or oxphos, which is, which happens in the mitochondria to a less efficient means of energy production, which is called aerobic glycolysis. So you're still able to produce energy in this, in when you have this chronic low grade inflammation, but it is less efficient. So you're going to be producing less ATP, less energy. That is the currency of our energy is adenosine triphosphate. Um, and this is going to re uh, result in, you know, reduced glucose availability because your insulin sensitivity, um, is down and there therefore it's sort of this vicious cycle where now you're going to also because you have reduced glucose availability for the cell you're going to now have reduced cellular energy because you have less glucose getting into the cell to be able to make that atp 
So what happens when we're sleep deprived? Well, I don't really need to tell you, but there have been studies that have looked at it, but that inferior fuel partitioning, as I mentioned, so you're kind of now uh, working through this aerobic glycolysis versus this oxidative phosphorylation, which is very abundant and a rich source of ATP production. You're going to be hyperinsulinemic. So when we see more and more blood glucose kind of hanging around, the beta cells of the pancreas are like, hey, we got to get this, we got to move this. So you're going to you're going to start increasing naturally increasing your own insulin output which is going to result in a higher net net insulin level Uh, you're going to have impaired glucose disposal and that's primarily via the function of muscles reducing their um, insulin sensitivity and probably a tendency to eat more crap right let's just be honest when we're tired it's much harder to resist the temptations of the chips, the cookies, the crackers, the little snacky snacks that, you know, when you walk by the pantry, you don't even realize it, but your face is in there and you're, you know, you've already had a handful of popcorn. And of course we never put those into our calorie counters because they don't count. Right. So we, we have a tendency to eat more crap. I would say also just from an emotional regulation perspective, uh, and this is because I have, I too have, have noticed this as well, is that you just, you, your tendency to snap is just, uh, we'll say augmented, right? So you, you know, your partner's chewing is going to annoy you, your children, you're going to have less patience for them, your boss, your coworkers, all the things, right? You're just going to be a little bit less emotionally regulated because the areas of the brain that are involved in emotional regulation are more, uh, we'll say, um, they're harder to activate. So when we're talking about the frontal lobe and the prefrontal cortex in particular is very susceptible to lack of sleep. And the prefrontal cortex and the frontal lobe in general is involved in inhibiting lower brain centers like the limbic system, which is sort of our emotionality, right? It's more of our primitive, some people call it like the lizard brain, if you will. I don't know how I feel about lizard brain, but that's, that's sort of what, that's sort of what happens. More of our primal instincts have a tendency to show up versus being able to regulate and say, okay, maybe I shouldn't, uh, scream at my husband for the way that he's breathing or the way that he's eating his meal. Uh, I might just be tired. Right. All right. So that's kind of a general overview of sleep in and of itself. I want to move into talking about some of the hormones that affect sleep and I want to talk about a bunch of them. I want to talk about female reproductive hormones for sure. I think we'll start off with melatonin because there's a lot of conversation and there's a lot of questions that came from you in terms of, should I be supplementing with melatonin? What does it do? Why is it important? Why am I available to get an over-the-counter hormonal supplement like melatonin and not for some of the other hormones that uh, exist in the body? So let's, uh, and then we'll, we'll move into a few other ones that are also involved in the quality uh, and the quantity of our sleep, like vasopressin as well. All right, so melatonin, you've probably heard of melatonin. Uh, this is the hormone that is involved in sleep onset, right? So it is not necessarily sleep duration or the maintenance of sleep, but it is involved in initiating sleep. So basically melatonin is involved in how long it takes you to fall asleep. Sometimes that's called sleep latency. Um, it reduces sleep efficiency, which is how much time you actually spend uh, asleep in bed as well. And as we age, of course, melatonin decreases. Melatonin secretion 
um, decreases. So with age, the pineal gland, which is where melatonin comes from, simply does not store as much melatonin and release melatonin because effectively the pineal gland over time uh, goes through a process called calcification where there's calcium deposits that sort of accumulate in it. So it reduces its overall storage capacity, right? Um, there's also some thinking that changes in our vision as we age also can contribute to this decline in melatonin. So uh, we've all heard about how important early morning light is. We'll talk about that today as well. Um, as we develop, you know, as we age, things like cataracts um, and things that impede the perfusion of light through the eye through to get to the retina and those ganglionic retinal cells, which are going to activate uh, certain circadian biology, uh, our vision changes can also impact our melatonin secretion as well. So when when and where is it an appropriate time to think about melatonin? This was a question I had put out on Instagram, like, tell me, ask me all your sleep questions because I'm putting together this big um, uh, sort of review of sleep, if you will. And one of them was what happened, like why or when should I supplement with melatonin? And I would say that there's a couple, there's a couple of different verticals that we can um, consider. One is jet lag. And this is actually where I typically use um, melatonin most commonly. So there's been studies that have shown that when you're using melatonin, it can help reset your body's, let's say, clock after you've switched time zones. I would say to sort of further dive into that, it's more important for me to use melatonin when I'm flying forward versus when I'm flying backward. What do I mean by that? Well, when I am flying to a time zone that's already ahead of me, um, I find that melatonin use is more appropriate there than it is when I am flying to time zones that are behind me. So for example, when I fly to France, let's say, or Italy, they're usually uh, several hours, six to, you know, depending on the time of year, six to seven hours ahead of me. So at 9 p.m., let's say in France, that is, and I live in Eastern, so I live in uh, Eastern time. So at 9 p.m. In, in France is effectively like three o'clock in the afternoon for me, normally where I am in Toronto, Canada. So it is very important for me to not, uh, to supplement with melatonin because otherwise it's very easy for me to stay up to like two or three o'clock France time, which would equate to about nine o'clock Eastern time. So I often will use melatonin when I'm flying forward. When I fly to, for example, California, which is Pacific time, they are three hours behind me. So I have absolutely no problem falling asleep. And I have done this falling asleep at six o'clock uh, Pacific time, which of course equates to my regular circadian clock of about nine o'clock Eastern, which is when I typically go to sleep. So I find that melatonin use is really great when you're flying forward, uh, not backwards. Another uh, another appropriate sort of application of melatonin is insomnia. This was another big question. So we're going to actually, I'm going to just say insomnia and then I'm going to shelf it and I'm going to come back to insomnia because this was such a big question from all of you women that were like, I don't know what happened. I turned 42 or turned 45 and all of a sudden I can't sleep. So uh, it seems like the research is very promising, not proven yet, but there is a high corollary, at least right now, that melatonin supplementation can help treat insomnia uh, in older adults. So these trends are looking really good, um, but that's but that's another you know appropriate application of melatonin. And then the other 
uh, application of melatonin, which is which maybe some parents will find very um, uh, encouraging and maybe inspire some hope, is problems with uh, you know kids that have we'll call it neuropsychiatric disorders. So kids on the autism spectrum with psych- uh, psychiatric disorders, epilepsy, melatonin seems to improve their sleep. Uh, we know that kids with autism generally have um, very poor, uh, we'll say detoxification pathways. There's usually some changes in the microbiome. There's a lot of things that are happening concordantly that will that can contribute to a buildup, let's say, of toxicity uh, in the child. So melatonin, which is a very powerful antioxidant, is very, very useful uh, with kids with autism. And as I mentioned, psychiatric disorders, epilepsy, et cetera. There's also some evidence um, certainly around uh, improving sleep with Alzheimer's disease as well. So we talked about, um, and you can kind of mechanistically or at least deduce that when someone with Alzheimer's is going to have, you know, the buildup of those tau tangles of those beta amyloid plaques. And one of the things that we, that sleep does, as I mentioned at the top of this conversation is that it allows for that glial cell shrinkage and that cerebrospinal fluid to kind of come in and give the brain a good scrub, if you will, right? It's like cleans, it gives the brain a little bit of a car wash. So that's going to be probably impaired in patients with Alzheimer's. So melatonin, because of its, again, its antioxidant uh, uh, antioxidant properties and its ability to initiate sleep might also be a really good idea for patients with Alzheimer's. Now, I'm giving you some of the applications here. I'm not, I want to be clear, I'm not saying if you have an aunt or an uncle or a grandfather or a parent with Alzheimer's, don't rush out to the store and then just like pour the bottle down their throat. This does have to be done in conjunction with their doctor. And so that you can manage dosage, you can manage and you can track with the professional, your professional healthcare provider over time. This is just information, right? So I'm a doctor, not your doctor. That's kind of the, you know, that's sort of my disclaimer here. So I can talk about some of these things without hopefully without the, um, with the understanding that these are not specific recommendations for you, but this is information that you can go and use and talk to your PCP about how to best use this supplement. Okay, so Alzheimer's disease, the treatment of ADHD. So attention deficit hyperactivity uh, disorder and like ADHD sleep-related issues. So this typically happens more often in boys. So often you'll get sort of, I don't say maybe a false diagnosis sometimes of ADHD, but if you have a son like I do, who likes to move around a lot or has an affinity for an, a lot of movement, like my young, my 10 year old can be running around for three, four, five hours without getting tired, right? Um, and I, it, I'm always reminded of my, one of my mentors, Dr. Michael Hall, um, who is a functional neurologist. And I remember when I was taking one of his classes, he was, he's like, I'm going to give you the best parenting advice for boys that you'll ever, that you'll ever, you know, need. It's like the way to raise boys is to run them into the ground. <laughs> so it's like you throw the football, you throw the kick, the soccer ball, you know, you throw the, the baseball, you get them to run after it. And then once they get up from running them into the ground for two to three hours, they get up and you run them, you continue to run them into the ground. And I always remember that piece of advice now that I have boys that are in that, and they've always been very active, but in particular now where they're where they're joining group sports and, and things of that nature. Okay, so back to sleep. So melatonin, ADHD, right? So uh, useful for, um, for ADHD-related sleep problems. You'll often find that those kids are often waking up several times overnight. 
You can also use it for someone who's tapering, right? If you're trying to get off of sleep medication like benzodiazepines, um, that might this might also be useful for them because it's it's a horrendous de- it's a horrendous tapering. Like I think getting off sleep medication uh, and I'll say antidepressants uh, in terms of what I've seen from patients in the past are probably two of the most difficult things to wean off of. And then depression-related sleep disorders, again, uh, men and women who experience depression, certainly women experience depression at higher rates than men do. Um, you can also, if, if, you've been cl- if, you, if you qualify for the diagnosis of clinical depression, of course, you know that your sleep is going to be altered um, as well. All right, so that's sort of where I see the melatonin supplementation game coming into uh, coming into play. I'll also draw on Dr. Michael Bruce, who's been on the show before, who talks about different types of melatonin supplementation, because it is kind of a bit of a wild, wild west when you look at the dosage and, of course, the quality control, the QC um, of many melatonin uh, supplementation. So even if it says, let's say, three migs on the, on the bottle, you're not necessarily getting that. It could be five migs, it could be one, you know, so we, there's really, the brand really matters in terms of the quality. So I'm always a big fan of, and you know, this is not sponsored, but I, you know, I love, uh, brands like Thor, uh, Thor, AOR, uh, designs for health. These are ones that I typically will draw. These are typically ones that I'll look at. Pure encapsulations is another great one. Um, but Dr. Michael Bruce recommended a plant-based melatonin called herbatonin. Uh, and I had never heard of this before. And um, I believe that the dosage is 0.3 migs, 0.3 milligrams, which is very similar to the amount of melatonin that humans actually make, right? So when you look, when you tra- when you traditionally go to, a, let's say, a, a natural food store and you're looking at the bottle, you'll see things like you know, one mig, three migs, 10 migs of, of melatonin. And that's not that these are super physiological levels of melatonin. We don't make that much, right? So herbatonin is a, I believe it's a slow release capsule and it most closely mimics the amount of melatonin that we make. So it's based off of plants. It's a plant-based melatonin. Um, so that might be something to check out as well. And I'll make sure that I have that linked for you in the show notes if you want to check that out too. All right. So that's melatonin. Let's move in to female reproductive hormones, because these are the ones that are going to change most profoundly in perimenopause and menopause, and also have the capacity to alter and affect sleep, all all like the consistency and the quality and the quantity um, of sleep. So first, I just want to say that I've said many times on the show before, you know, men are like the sun, women are like the moon. And when I say that, of course, I mean that men are much more tethered to a circadian biology of going through all of their reproductive hormones. So they will produce, you know, the most amount of testosterone, let's say in the morning, work its way through, and then estrogen is more dominant for them in the evening. And then the cycle repeats again. For women, of course, we don't cycle through all of our testosterone. We don't cycle through all of our estrogen on a day-to-day basis, but, but rather it's over the course of about 29 and a half days, which is coincidentally very similar to the the lunar cycle. That being said, there is another layer of nuance that I want to put on top of the lunar cycle, which is a circadian or a daily cycle. So I want to say that women are like the moon, but also like the sun because we're just extra like that. So um, we do produce 
we do produce hormones on a daily basis, right? Um, and there's going to be certain times of the day that we produce our hormones. And this is the reason why I'm I'm bringing this up is this is going to inform, hopefully, if you are considering, if you're in menopause or you're in perimenopause and you're considering either bioidentical uh, hormone replacement therapy or hormone replacement therapy, that we can very closely at least try to mimic the circadian production of these hormones. And you can sort of tailor that to when you're taking your medication. Okay. So let's talk about estrogen, progesterone, follicular stimulating hormone, and luteinizing hormone. Okay. These four all show very strong 24-hour rhythms during the follicular phase of the menstrual cycle. In the luteal phase, only follicular uh, stimulating hormone is really rhythmic, we'll say, uh, in, in the in the luteal phase. And so the hormonal peaks of those uh, hormones, estrogen, progesterone, FSH, and LH, the hormonal peaks have been found in the morning for progesterone. So you make all of your progesterone in the morning, okay? In the afternoon, you make your LSH and your FSH. And then at night, you make your estrogen. Okay. So if you are, and so I, I bring this up because I've had quite a few clients say, oh, I take my progesterone. I do my progesterone cream in the evening. Uh, well, your progesterone is made in the morning. So it would behoove you to consider, let's say, um, taking your progesterone if you are on B BHRT or HRT, potentially in the morning, if that's the only thing that you're taking because the likelihood that it is going to warm you up overnight and disrupt your circadian rhythm is very high. So you could also be kind of messing with your system by taking your hormones at the wrong time of day. All right, so let's dive in. Let's let's double dip into progesterone a little bit. So obviously progesterone, wide spectrum of biological activity through the body, right? Uh, it's known to, it's like kind of famous for uh, reproduction, progestation, progest progesterone, sleep quality, respiration, mood, appetite, learning, all the things, right? Memory, sexual activity. Progesterone, as it relates to sleep, has almost like a hypnotic effect or like an induction, we'll say. And it's also a respiratory stimulant. Uh, and the reason why I'm, I'm bringing that up is that is because it is a respiratory stimulant, it is associated with a decrease, a decrease in the number of central and obstructive sleep apnea episodes. So why do I say this? Because sleep apnea tends to start increasing. So ladies that are stopping breathing overnight and snoring, uh, we start to see this happen more and more in our 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond. Whereas, you know, we always talk about sleep apnea in the context of the guys, uh, and certainly there is a there is a relationship between testosterone and sleep apnea, but there's also a relationship with progesterone and sleep apnea. So as our progesterone declines, we are now more susceptible to uh, snoring, to not being able to, uh, let's say, breathe and get the oxygen perfusion and saturation through the body that we need overnight, which can lead to this obstructive sleep apnea. And in terms of sleep quality, obviously, uh, we've talked about this before, but I'll mention it for those of you that, that are listening just for the first time and welcome. Welcome to the family, Bettys. Uh, progesterone is a precursor to GABA. So GABA is a neurotransmitter that basically reduces neuronal activity. It basically tells them like, shh, <laughs> sleep time. So it's very soothing to the brain. GABA is very soothing to the brain. And it also controls fear and anxiety, right? So GABA helps everything feel better. It's like that post-orgasmic, like everything's good. I feel so good in my body. 
unicorn sunshine rainbow and flowers and then you you know you head off into um a beautiful slumber and of course when your gaba is not active you know with, with declining estrogen in perimenopause and menopause that fear and anxiety can start to ratchet up again in the evening and i hear this a lot from women where you are tired but you're wired right so in the evening all you're thinking about is the war in the ukraine uh, you're thinking about the political landscape. You're thinking about, you know, all all the things that you shouldn't be thinking about in the evening because your GABA is not calming the brain. It's not lulling the brain to sleep, let's say. And of course, it plays a it plays a role in uh, like GABA will help to play a role in behavior, cognition, and the body's response to stress. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. So as I've mentioned, uh, progesterone drops sometimes sharply, like it's usually a sort of a slow decline, but in some women, uh, it is a sharp decline where you might wake up one day and you're 43 and you have no idea why you can't sleep anymore. Um, during uh, perimenopause, estrogen on the other hand is typically secreted well until menopause, although there's like wild, you know, oscillations, um, uh, around the concentrations of estrogen, which we'll talk about in a moment, but that that perimenopause decade, and I, you know, kind of classify it as like, maybe it's a little bit more, decade and a half, really, it's like 35 to 52, is a really big time for insomnia uh, and anxiety for many women, because we have this sharp decline or this gradual decline in progesterone, which leads to this like raging estrogen dominance in the luteal phase of the cycle. So whenever you are starting to feel more anxious at night, whenever you're starting to feel like um, you're not lulling, like you're not sort of really relaxed in the evening, we have to ask ourselves two questions. Is it that you have low progesterone? That's one option. Or is it, uh, which is leading to estrogen, uh, which is leading to estrogen dominance, right? So is your estrogen too high or your progesterone too low? That's the question that you have to answer. Maybe it's both. Sometimes it's one or the other. So we want to be thinking about progesterone as it relates to nighttime anxiety and being able to just sort of calm, let's say calm down. And in normal cycling women where progesterone, like endogenous production, like normal production of progesterone, um, it mod it also modulates other hormones. Like progesterone is the queen, right? So she is going to help modulate the secretion of other hormones like growth hormone, which we're going to talk about, prolactin and TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone. My ladies with thyroid dysfunction know this hormone very well. 
And so this is part of the reason. So we're going to talk about solutions uh, a little bit later in the show. But sometimes when we start to administer progesterone, let's say either through bioidentical hormones, um, what we see is we see a, dr a dramatic improvement in some of these environmental related, you know, we'll call them sleep perturbations, right? So like the anxiety and the inability to fall asleep. Um, but you'll also see changes in sleep quality and sleep duration. So quantity and quality will also change with an appropriate amount of progesterone, let's say either endogenously produced or exogenously um, supplemented. The other thing, and I mentioned TSH, and I know all of my Hashimoto's and my hypothyroid ladies are like, did she just mention thyroid? Yes, I did. So temporal, so the, the TSH patterns, um, when we uh, when we look at progesterone supplementation, um, what we typically see is with progesterone supplementation, we see a lower TSH concentration and an untouched free T4. So this is, this gets into a bit of complexity in terms of thyroid um, thyroid pathways, but essentially the thyroid stimulating hormone is released from the brain, which is basically sort of like, hey thyroid girl, like wake up, make some make some T4, right? So the th the thyroid primarily makes T4. Uh, about ninety three percent of the hormone that the thyroid produces is T4, and then you know the fill, we'll call it seven or eight percent of it. Um, is T3, which is the active hormone. T4 now has to go into the periphery and be converted, uh, let's say, in the liver, in the skeletal muscle, heart, you know, all the sort of target organs where we see T4 converted to T3. So why this is important is that with progesterone supplementation, we can see that the brain also is calming down in terms of its output of TSH, but our free T4 levels are untouched. So the, the thyroid is still having the same output of T4, right? So that free T4 is still unchanged, um, but now the um, the thyroid stimulating hormone, that that neurotrans that stimulating hormone that's released from the brain, is lowered, which is always a good thing for women who are hypothyroid or have a tendency towards hypothyroidism. So progesterone cream, if it's, you know, progesterone exogenously administered, or when we talk about uh, some of the solutions later on in the show, I'm going to talk about a couple of different supplements and things. Um, that is also something to consider um, as well. Okay, let's talk a little bit about growth hormone. So we're going to, we're going to go through progesterone, uh, which we talked about growth hormone, estrogen, testosterone, vasopressin, and then we're going to get into some solutions. So growth hormone, one of the things obviously that we know declines as a function of age, all of these hormones, growth hormone goes with it. And if you've forgotten what growth hormone does, it basically stimulates growth and cell regeneration. So as a kid, it makes you taller. Um, as an adult, it keeps your muscles lean uh, by building muscle, burning fat. And, you know, as we age, growth hormone is going to decline Again, same time around progesterone, beginning at around like, you know, mid 30s, like 30, 35, let's say. And if you are under a lot of stress, so pregnancy, delivery, breastfeeding, getting pregnant again, <laughs> delivering again, now having two children to tend to, um, sleep, being sleep deprived, maybe you're consuming a lot of 
uh, carbs or what I call the mom diet, which is like, you know, you give your kids the chicken fingers and the fries and they eat like half of it and then you end up polishing off, you know, whatever bits are on the plate. Um, you know, if you're having too much carbohydrates, you're sitting too much, you're more sedentary, you're not exercising, you're not lifting heavy weights. This is a recipe for destroying your growth hormones. Okay. So, so I, I wanted to sort of bring, bring this to the forefront of our, um, of your understanding as well. With growth hormone, we don't make it continuously, right? You you produce growth hormone in pulses, right? So mostly at night uh, while you're sleeping. So that's important, right? So if we're not getting good sleep, our growth hormone levels, again, are going to not be produced adequately overnight. And while we, we don't necessarily measure growth hormone directly, we do have a proxy for it in the body. It's called IGF-1 or insulin-like growth factor 1. Typically, levels are lower in women compared to men, you know, around age 45, 50, we start to see bigger uh, changes. And this is, you know, probably because women are more likely to suffer from insomnia, right? So as we are seeing these decline in progesterone that I was talking about before, I've talked about environmental stressors or the stress sandwich, right? So we have pressure from above and pressure from below. We have the aging parents that we're now involved in taking care of. And now we have the teenagers that are mouthy and we have, and maybe we're grieving the, the, the growing up of our children. So we have sort of these two pressures from our kids, from our parents, and then we're right in the middle and that's the stress sandwich. Uh, our IGF levels are lower. Um, and then all the things that happen in, you know, in our, in our 30s, right, where we are multi-parous, right? So we have many, many pregnancies. We have, you know, maybe one child or more children. And that, of course, is its own skill set, its own set of stressors. Of course, I wouldn't change it for the world. Like I would never, I can't imagine life without my children, but we have to have an understanding of some of the physical, chemical, and emotional stressors that this has on our, on our physiology. So growth hormone, like progesterone, uh, is intimately connected to cortisol and insulin. So when they go haywire, then we start to see problems that happen, right? So when we are um, thinking about our perimenopausal and menopausal women, um, as I mentioned, there's a marked decrease in our growth hormone output as a natural function of age. Um, but we want to we want to be thinking about strategies to help with growth hormone, either maintenance or improving with it uh, with with time. Okay, so here are some ways that you might think about if you're thinking like I've never thought about this hormone before. All I've been thinking about is estrogen. These are some things to consider. These are not diagnostic, but these are these come in a clinical, there's like a clinical cluster of symptoms, we'll say, that go hand in hand with a growth hormone deficiency. So if you have been noticing in your 40s, uh, maybe even as early as your 30s, um, reduced lean body mass, uh, increased uh, abdominal adiposity, so more uh, what we would call ectopic fat distribution for a woman. So she's going to have more fat through the belly an increase in insulin resistance, which might put you at a risk of prediabetes. So your labs will tell you this. So your HbA1c, your fasting glucose, your fasting insulin, your, you might have hypertension or high blood pressure, high triglycerides uh, as well, which is like a uh, basically the storage form of fat, but you have high triglycerides circulating in the plasma. Um, more anxiety and depression, again, that overlaps with many other things. It's not diagnostic, but again, comes in that cluster altogether. Uh, decreased bone density, 
things like a sagging face. So like your skin feels like sagging, you know, your lips are thinning out, like you're, you're noticing the, we'll say the volume uh, of your lips are decreasing, your eyelids are kind of droopy, or you're, there's a lot of wrinkles. Now, again, wrinkles happen as a function of age. So, you know, you, it's not necessarily diagnostic of low growth hormone, but all of these things together can indicate that as well. Uh, more anxiety, um, your height, uh, what we're starting to notice is you're starting to hang off of your ligaments. So your posture is changing, like you're having that, what we would call hyperkyphotic uh, presentation in the upper back. So we have curves in the spine. It looks almost like a caterpillar. Um, and in the thoracic spine or in the mid back, there's sort of a forward curve. But as we age, you know, if we are, if we don't have the muscles um, to support the structures of the spine, to support the the vertebra and the lamina and the posterior processes of the spine, we start to kind of hang off of our ligaments, which means that we're going to start to sort of hunch forward. And then a couple of other things that you might consider, um, just like saggy. Uh, I remember Dr. Sarah Gottfried, when she came on the show, she had a test where she was like, just pinch the sort of hypothenar, like this like meaty part under the thumb, is it really easy to pinch? And if you can pinch it, does the skin go back or does it sort of take a moment to sort of like reconfigure into its, you know, into its uh, default state? So thinking about some of those are important when we're thinking about growth hormone um, deficiency. And of course, we're going to talk about strategies like obviously it's usually the treatment, like the diagnosis, uh, when you are eating lots of carbs and you're not weight training and you're not getting good sleep, those are usually going to be the prescription that I'm going to give you. So I will state my bias, uh, right now, I'm going to tell you that you got to lift weights. And, uh, the reason why that's, um, why that's interesting. We talked, I talked about how women, um, release growth hormone in, um, impulses and it's it's different and we have a sort of a dimorphic if you will a sexually dimorphic um pattern of growth hormone secretion compared to our men so we will um uh as i mentioned we it's more pulsatile and then there's more long there's longer intervals in between the in between those pulses for men it's much higher amplitude and a much sort of quicker um time of secretion. And the difference between men and women, of course, is that when we are doing things like resistance training or even core temperature manipulation. So if you are, let's say in a sauna, you can reach peak growth hormone um, secretion faster than our male counterparts. So this is actually when we sort of win, <laughs> if you will, the metabolic game uh, compared to our, our beautiful men is that we can usually reach peak gr growth hormone secretion at about 20 to call it 30 minutes of uh, exercise. So that could be weight training, that could be HIIT training, that could be sauna, uh, versus men who have to do it after, you know, they will reach peak growth hormone secretion at about that 40 to 60 minute mark. So it is easy for us to kind of reverse that um, through things like resistance training and temperature manipulation, uh, certainly sleep, which is where we're going to be talking a little bit about sleep strategies in a moment as well. All right, let's talk about estrogen a little bit. Obviously, sleep problems become more common as you age. Um, and for estrogen in particular, one of the things that we want to think about coming back to those sleep stages that we were talking about at the top of the hour is estrogen's influence on how much time we spend in rapid eye movement sleep, right? Um, estrogen and progesterone can have, both of them together, can have 
effects on the electrical activity of the brain during different stages of sleep and wakefulness. So being uh, obviously asleep means like you're going to be either in that non-REM sleep or that um, that rapid eye movement um, sleep. And sometimes in the early morning, I don't know if you've ever, hopefully it's not just me, but you in the early morning, we have these sort of crazy dreams, like they're super vivid. That is going to be, that's that rapid eye movement sleep. So one of the things that we, one of the things that we know is with declining estrogen is that we will spend less and less time um, in that rapid eye movement. And you also see this in the elderly, right? Where they can start to go to bed later, but then they start to wake up earlier and earlier and earlier, which of course means that they're cutting off that REM sleep, which is typically we see a lot of that REM sleep in the morning, like right before we, right before we wake up. The other thing that estrogen affects, of course, is serotonin. So, you know, estrogen is very intimately connected to serotonin, which is, again, another neurotransmitter um, that is eventually converted into the sleep hormone melatonin. It's also very calming in the same way that I was describing GABA with progesterone. Serotonin is also very calming. And so late stage menopause, so when you're in your late 40s, your early 50s, where we may start to see more of a low estrogen um, environment, that can lead to, of course, a low serotonin uh, environment and is not only going to contribute to those sleep problems, but also more depression and anxiety, right? So um, you've heard me talk about the monoamine uh, hypothesis, uh, hypothesis of depression. I don't subscribe to it, but we do know that serotonin is very important for uh, our contentedness, our feelings satisfied in terms of where we are versus if we contrast that with dopamine, dopamine is like the huntress, right? She wants to go out and hunt. She wants to go for the kill. She's motivated. She wants to go out and find the success, the accolades, the car, the house, the, all the things. Serotonin is really happy where she is. Like think about after you've had like a really great meal and you feel satisfied, that's serotonin, right? So serotonin also, when we're feeling very good with where we are in our lives, when we don't have that, of course, you're going to feel depressed, you're going to feel anxious, right? And the female brain is highly dependent on sufficient amounts of estrogen for normal function in general, but things like the brain fog and the memory loss, these are also under the influence of a low estrogen environment um, as well. Estrogen is also, in terms of sleep, a vasodilator and a hypotensive agent, right? So it it can it can induce vascular, uh, call it relaxation, uh, by stimulation of um, something called endothelium derived, you know, the vaso vasodilate vaso uh, dilatory substances like nitric oxide, um, and by acting directly on the smooth muscle of the vasculature as well. So this is the hot flash conversation, ladies. If I've lost you in my in my nerd speak, uh, it's basically when we are seeing wildly oscillating levels of estrogen, we can get wildly oscillating vasodilating and vasoconstricting um, levels of like the, the vasculature can be opening and closing. And that's the hot sweats. That's the the night sweats um, that we can experience overnight. And I'll also say that the the person who experiences hot flashes as well, I've noticed this is not true for everyone, but I'll say with the women that I have spoken to, um, there there is kind of a phenotype of a woman who uh, does experience a lot of hot flashes. It's not all the time, but mostly it's a woman who's been chronically stressed for most of her life where she hasn't dealt with some of the 
you know, issues of her childhood, issues of her adult life. Um, and then when we are moving in perimenopause and menopause, of course, the ovaries are now handing off their responsibility of estrogen production, uh, progesterone production, uh, testosterone production over to the adrenals. So if the adrenals are already taxed because you've been a stress case for 30 years, uh, you're not going to be a very good producer, let's say, of these sex hormones from the adrenal glands. So as vague as stress management sounds, like you got to get a handle on your stress, right? And I talked about this in the perimenopause masterclass. So if you want a refresher, please go back and listen to the first. Ep There's two episodes, masterclass one and two. Um, please listen to the first one because we spend a big major, a, a large majority of our time talking about ways to stress manage, how stress management impacts our autonomic system, which we've touched on today, our sleep quality, our mood, our affect, all of the things. All right, let's move to uh, let's move over and talk a little bit about vasopressin. So, um, vasopressin is an interesting hormone. Um, it is it's called the antidiuretic hormone. So we're going to talk in a little bit of double negative speak, which is always difficult for the for uh, even for me as an English speaker. But an antidiuretic hormone means that you are not going to be peeing overnight. Okay, so vasopressin is involved in allowing you to just accumulate the urine overnight without you know let's say you're without urinating uh, or having to wake up to to go urinate. Now, as we age, guess what happens to vasopressin? <laughs> it's like, you guessed it, it decreases. So we have a decrease in vasopressin as a function of aging, which is why some women will also wake up um, overnight because they have to pee. We also see this in men too. There's a couple of different reasons for men. We also see some benign, pro you know, we see uh, the prostate is enlarging and there's, um, uh, there's some other issues that are going on with the guys. But um, women will, we have sort of this unique challenge because we want to stay hydrated, but we don't want to, we don't be waking up overnight to pee, right? So vasopressin in terms of what it does is it, it, it holds or maintains the appropriate amount of water volume in the space it surrounds cells and it arouse, allows for proper cellular function. So it's a, it's a circadian hormone. So it will, um, uh, it's, it's going to be more, uh, active overnight, obviously, because we don't want to be peeing overnight. Uh, it also helps maintain the body's internal temperature, right? So uh, internal temperature, blood volume, and then proper flow of urine um, from the kidneys. So if there are some things that are going to negatively affect vasopressin that you can do right now. So even though we know that we naturally have declining levels of vasopressin, um, things like um, drinking alcohol, any type of alcohol, doesn't matter what kind, will inhibit the antidiuretic hormones. This is the negative, the double speak that I was talking about. So if you inhibit an antidiuretic, you are going to get a diuretic, which is why you are going to wake up several times overnight to pee if you've had, you know, one glass or several glasses of wine. So alcohol has an inhibitory effect on um, vasopressin. The other thing uh, that you want to be thinking about in terms of limiting your uh let's say frequent trips to the bathroom overnight is limiting your liquid consumption overnight. So um, I often uh, will ask patients to uh, or clients to keep a journal if this is a big problem for them. Like when was your last, when was your last uh, 
intake of liquid. And we also have to include meals in that because our body can extract a lot of liquid from the foods that we're eating. Um, so when did you drink? How much did you drink? And, and when did you pee? So kind of learning your transit time. Like I've sort of learned myself that I have about a 45 minute, you know, by the time if I finish a, you know, cup of bone broth, which is typically, I usually have that in the evening. It's, I'm, it's about 45 minutes later when I got to go to the bathroom, right? So what is your transit time learning about that? So then you can sort of create a, okay, I need to make sure that I stop drinking at least 45 minutes in my case, or an hour, let's say, prior to going to sleep, uh, so that I can limit the need to wake up um, over overnight. Uh, there's also, you can also, um, you can also take um, you can also take medication, but I feel like vasopressin. Um, when we're thinking about the importance of vasopressin, it's like the reduction uh, or that that night waking is reducing fluid consumption in the hour or two before bed, limiting alcohol. The other thing is caffeine, right? So even a decaf. It still has some caffeine in it. So if you're having a decaf after dinner because you think you're doing good, you're still getting some caffeine and caffeine is a diuretic as well, um, which is going to help, which is going to facilitate the peeing overnight. A couple of the tips I'll give you is maybe elevating your legs in the evening. Sometimes, sometimes uh, nighttime urination happens because your body reabsorbs water from your legs once you're lying down um, because of the, because now when you're lying down, you're not, you're not fighting against gravity. Um, so if you put your legs up for a few hours before bed, uh, you can allow this process to take place during wake, like during your waking time without allowing for those sleep interruptions. And then of course, obviously pee right before you go to bed, like void empty the tank right before you go to sleep as part of your routines so that you're less likely to sort of feel that strong need to urinate during the night. So I wanted to cover vasopressin. Um, and because I mentioned alcohol, uh, this is another, this is another question that came in from one of the ladies is like, is there any alcohol that's ever okay? Um, I'll say that alcohol affects sleep in a, in a couple of different ways. So one is that it affects vasopressin, right? So it inhibits vasopressin, which is our antidiuretic hormones. So you're gonna wanna pee more often. Um, the other thing is that you're gonna have fragmented sleep, meaning that you're gonna be waking up frequently, whether or not you're aware of it or not. You may not even realize that you're waking up, but you're gonna be, you're gonna, in, you're gonna have this fragmented sleep. So you're not gonna be easily and seamlessly moving through phase one, two, three, four, and REM sleep. Um, and then it also negatively impacts all your vitals, right? Anyone who ever has worn an aura ring and had a glass of wine, let's say even an hour or two or three before bed, I can tell you my HRV tanks, my heart rate variability tanks, my resting heart rate is jacked. So like my regular resting heart rate is somewhere around, depending on where I am in my cycle, something like 50 to 55 beats per minute. If I have uh, alcohol, it's like 60, like it's, it'll go up quite a bit. My temperature goes up uh, where my aura ring is like, girl, you're right. Like everything's okay over there. Uh, same thing with my respiratory rate. I'm breathing faster as well, right? It's actually quite devastating to see the effects that alcohol has on my quality quantity uh, of sleep. So those are some of the things that uh, it does. My personal opinion, um, and this is just my opinion, is that there's really no time and place for alcohol. And I, I know that this is going to bother so many of you because you just love like that evening, you know, that nightcap, let's say, or it helps you wind down. 
I promise you it's not helping you wind down. It's actually stressing you out. Uh, and the type of sleep that you're having is almost like a comatose sleep. It's not real. It's not true sleep, especially if you're going to bed completely inebriated. So that is my personal opinion. I don't drink any alcohol almost ever. Um, I will have a glass maybe at Christmas and then maybe at Thanksgiving I'll have, you know, I'll have a glass maybe there. But, and of course, because I only have two, maybe three glasses a year, uh, I always make sure it's a really great bottle of wine. But uh, for the most part, I never drink alcohol. Absolutely never. Um, and I have found that, you know, especially now in my 40s, uh, when I like the odd time where I break that rule, uh, I really do notice devastating effects on my sleep. And it's not just a day, like it takes me a couple days to kind of come back into that homeostatic, that balance that I, that I like, so like to live in. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about, um, we've talked a little bit about all these hormones. I want to talk a little bit about some solutions now. Okay. So the first thing that I want to talk about is sleep hygiene. And then I'm going to get into like naps and some supplements and stuff. So Obviously, the regularity, uh, like the f main tips I can tell you is regularity, right? So uh, if you're going to bed at the same time, you also like that's actually less important than waking up at the same time. 15, 20, 30 minutes, you know, difference when you're going to bed. No, not a problem. Try to get up at the same time every day, including weekends. These are just basic hygiene tips. You probably all know this, but just in case this is mind blowing for you, I'm including it. Um, light. Lots of darkness. We want to get lots of darkness at, at night. Um, I am not a big fan of blackout blinds. I like dark blinds. So they keep out, you know, let's call it 80 to 90% of the, you know, of the light that's streaming in through my window. But I don't like the blackout blinds because in the morning, I don't get that cue. I don't get that signal of light coming in, kind of peeking in through the uh, through the curtains. So I think dark blinds are important. Um, and I think you need to be restricting your access to light in the evening. So lots of darkness in the evening. Um, we typically turn off most of the lights. There's candle. I, I like to light candles or I have little night lights that are uh, plugged into the baseboards um, to sort of light the hallway so that we're not falling downstairs or anything like that. Temperature, you need to be cold to get to sleep. Uh, so keeping the room cold is really important. Um, and then if you are an insomniac, so this is, again, I wanted to, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about this. Uh, insomnia is, seems to affect like up to 40% of perimenopausal women. So we want to be doing a couple of things. First is we want to create an, a wind down routine. So this is absolutely, uh, in my opinion, critical. So many of us just assume that after watching Netflix or whatever on our phones that we're just going to go upstairs to bed and it's like a light switch and we just go to sleep and that's it. It's not like that at all. In the same way that you sort of are conscious in the morning and then you're more fully awake and then you kind of get out of bed, the same is true for getting to sleep. So developing a nighttime routine. This is for me personally, when I do a lot of my beauty routine, right? So I like to say, if my face looks like a glazed donut in the evening, <laughs> I have done my job. So I have <laughs> removed my makeup. I've put on my creams. I put on my oils and my skin is like super shiny and super hydrated. looks like a glazed donut. If I have the glazed donut look on my face, and I'll also say on my hair, because I want, you know, people will call it glass skin, I'm calling it the glazed donut skin. 
Same thing with my hair, glazed donut hair, like it's like nice and oiled and wrapped up and stuff for the for bedtime. That takes me about 30 minutes or so to kind of get through. So um, that's my evening routine. So starting your, you know, starting to wind down in the evening, it could be 15 minutes, it could be some meditation, it could be some journaling for me. It's the glazed, it's like Project Glazed Donut, um, you know, meditation, putting all your phones and gadgets away, cleaning up the room, whatever it is, right? Creating a wind down routine. The other thing I think is important is taking the clock, whatever clock you have in your room, uh, either dimming it or turning it away from visibility from your bed. Because if you were waking up overnight and you're like, oh God, what freaking time is it? And you look over and it's whatever it is, 2.30, you know, that in and of itself is going to create a lot of anxiety and you're going to be like, oh God, I just have to get to bed. And you know, and it's going to, it's going to help, it's going to paradoxically prevent you from getting to bed by seeing what time it is. And then the last thing, of course, is removing technology from the bedroom. So uh, we have a rule uh, in my house that all phones are charged and put away uh, in the, in the, in the living room. So we have like a little charging station where all the phones go, nothing comes up to the bed, bedroom ever. Um, because the, the tendency or the, the temptation to check your phone, either an email, a text, Instagram one last time, or even first thing in the morning, right? What do you do in the morning? You reach over, you grab, you reach over for Instagram or whatever you is on your phone. Like I like to sort of separate my morning from my phone. Um, and then this kind of trains your brain in the kind of a Pavlovian way that as you're tucking yourself into bed at night, not to expect anxiety, right? Because there's nothing more cortisol producing and anxiety producing than looking at an email that came in at 920. And, you know, maybe there's, you know, whatever the subject matter is now, now that's going to ruminate in your head all night long. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about insomnia. Because um, this affects, as I mentioned, up to 40% of perimenopausal women. And I'm going to give you kind of a counterintuitive approach to to um, helping uh, if you are experiencing uh, insomnia. So one of the things that um, we know about the brain is it's an incredibly associative organ, right? So very Pavlovian, right? It's like you press the bar, you're going to get a pellet. Um, so if you're someone who's struggling with insomnia, and you're lying in bed. You're lying in bed, and you're awake for most of the time. What I would actually recommend you do, and this is a bit counterintuitive, but it's actually decrease your time in bed, right? So you are going to decrease the association between bed and staying awake by getting out of bed, uh, and then you're also going to be increasing sleep pressure or that sleep drive, right? So that you know, if you kind of go downstairs and. I don't know, maybe you wipe the counter down or, you know, you maybe put you, you, you go back to the, you know, go back to your vanity and you, you're like, you know what, this, this face is not a glazed donut enough. Let me put some more oils on. Uh, You want to get out of bed so that you're increasing that sleep drive because you're going to be a little bit more tired. Right. And while I, while this is kind of contrary to what you might think, like, oh, if you're an insomniac, you need to like sleep more. um, This is one of the tools in kind of cognitive behavioral therapy where you are shortening essentially the sleep opportunity so that by um, when you do get into bed and you are tired, you are now going to reestablish that confidence that you can fall asleep in bed and you're kind of putting like a, an environmental and a time constraint on the person, right? So maybe um, they are not sleeping for nine hours, but now they're sleeping for six, but it's six really good hours. And even though you're sleeping less, 
you're building up more sleep pressure. So hopefully in the next day or two, uh, you can, uh, you can increase your total sleep time and you can, um, and you can get that quality of sleep when you want to fall asleep, right? Because the longer that you're awake, the more of that sleep pressure that you're building up, right? So this idea that you're, it's like this idea that you're sort of forcing your brain to realize that it only has this tiny opportunity of six hours or whatever. Um, so you have to take advantage of it. And I think, um, for me, um, I, I also want to say that um, there's been, we don't, I don't sleep perfectly all the time. There are many times when I wake up overnight, um, but because I don't have clock faces and because I know that I'm, you know, I can kind of fall back asleep, I, I do fall, I do kind of go back asleep. But there have been times here and there, and it's usually during periods of high stress in my life where I actually wake up in a panic and I can't get back to sleep. And in those cases, I actually get up out of bed because I don't want to lie in bed awake because my brain's like, oh, this is what we do in bed. We lie in bed and we lie awake. Get out of bed, you know, operation glazed donut, as I said, or, you know, kind of find some low tech, lightless uh, activity to to pursue until you feel a little bit more, um, a little bit more tired. Uh, so that's what I would say um, about insomnia. And then the other piece that I want to say as well that I think is really important is that it's also normal, 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 normal. It's normal to wake up overnight. Okay. So this is sort of a, um, we'll say teleologic or evol like when we look at this from like an evolutionary lens, um, humans didn't sleep all through the night, right? We were uh, sleeping, you know, if we think about tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years ago, sleeping in trees, you know, snakes are our big predators um, and snakes can climb trees. So women in particular would be thinking about their children. So we'd wake up often and overnight. So for the women that wrote into me and said, hey, I used to sleep like a baby and then I had a baby and now I can't sleep anymore. Part of that is because of that evolutionary uh, imprinting, we'll say, in you to protect your child. So it's okay that you're waking up overnight. That is normal. Um, and the same is true uh, for men. Men would wake up overnight looking and looking over and protecting their women and protecting the tribe and stuff. So if you're if you're waking up overnight, please don't shame yourself about it. It is totally normal. Um, and this kind of comes back to, you know, if you are if you are really if you've woken up several times overnight and you're tired, maybe you can consider taking a nap. So um, I I like naps. Um, I, I like a little uh, siesta. I don't do it all the time, but I sometimes will take a little siesta at about two o'clock uh, in the afternoon. It's about 20, 25 minutes. And um, if it's summertime, as it is kind of now, it's outside. I, I take a little nap outside um, or I'll sleep by a window. So it's not like a totally dark room. But the when we're thinking about efficiency of naps, um, they benefit learning, they benefit memory, immune function, cardiovascular health, lowers your blood pressure. Like it's really, really great. Uh, Dr. Michael Bruce, who's been on the show recommends like under 25 minutes. Um, so I really like that. So you're not kind of getting into that full cycle of like deep sleep, but you're just getting a little power, a little power siesta. Um, so I, I like that. And, um, I, you know, as I mentioned, I don't take them all the time, but when I feel like I need a little, like I sort of feel my energy dips uh, and it usually dips um, around two o'clock, three o'clock. If it does, um, that's usually when I'll take a little, a little power up. It's like a little power up bar. If you're, if you play Mario, uh, if you've ever played uh, Super Mario Brothers, you know that the, it's like getting a little, getting a little mushroom or something like that. 
So I like, I like naps. I think that's a nice way if you're someone who has spent a lot of time up overnight, just you want to caution, of course, that uh, if you do have trouble sleeping overnight consistently, then what naps are going to do is they're going to sort of remove some of that sleep pressure. So you do want to be careful about taking too long of a nap or too often, uh, too often uh, naps as well. So especially late in the afternoon when you sort of built up some of this adenosine, which is the hormone that kind of makes you feel sleepy. Uh, it can be harder for some to fall asleep if you've napped for too long. Um, so just keep keep that in mind. So I I sort of like to take a chapter out of, you know, from the Greek or Italian or we'll call it just Mediterranean uh, in general lifestyle, where if you try to get anything at two o'clock in the afternoon, like good luck. <laughs> uh, most most shops are closed. People go home for lunch and they take a little nap after. Uh, I really like I really like a nap here and there uh, in the early afternoon, like one, two o'clock in the afternoon is great. All right, let's talk a little bit about supplementation. All right. So I mentioned before with progesterone, um, when we are thinking about uh, progesterone, we want to be thinking about ways that we, is it answering the question, is it high uh, progesterone, is it low progesterone, sorry, or high estrogen or both? Um, Some of the supplements that I like, uh, and I actually like to take these in the evening are things like evening primrose oil. And the name is really easy to remember, evening primrose oil. Primrose oil, gosh, that's a hard word, uh, taking that in the evening. Um, it's a plant uh, native to North America, um, and it it is one of the herbs that is, has been shown to increase progesterone. Um, it has both omega-3s and omega-6 acids, which is like, you know, good types of healthy fats uh, because they're unsaturated. Um, and, you know, the healthy fat composition, the primrose oil, is one of the main mechanisms, actually, of how it increases progesterone um, naturally. Uh, also beneficial if you're someone who has PMS uh, or has like PMS syndrome, uh, where the week before your period, you're angry, bloated, uh, lots of water retention, moodiness, and sleep disturbances, also very uh, often tied to lower progesterone levels relative to estrogen. And evening primrose oil is really great for that as well. Uh, I also like chastberry or Vitex. Uh, this is also another hormone that has been shown to increase progesterone naturally. Chasteberry, I should say, not chastberry, chasteberry. Um, it's used in traditional medicine. And um, what it does is it decreases prolactin levels. That's sort of the mechanism of action. So in, it essentially returns the estrogen and progesterone balance in the luteal phase of the cycle back to what it should be. Um, it'll also increase the release of luteinizing hormones. This is also really great for my ladies who are anovulatory or dealing with androgen dominance or androgen excess, like in a, in a disease like PCOS. Uh, we need lutein, luteinizing hormones to peak uh, and to spike about 10 hours after the sort of main spike in estradiol in the follicular phase. And for many women who have, um, we'll say, lower lower levels of luteinizing hormone, this can also really help uh, to promote ovulation. And then, of course, by, by ovulating, you are going to now release progesterone as well. Uh, standard dose for that is somewhere between 150 to 250 uh, milligrams. Um, but certainly can be higher. I've seen it. I've seen it higher as um, as well. My other favorite, the other favorite that I like to take in the evening is ashwagandha. Um, this is um, another herb. In- increases progesterone naturally. Helps with recovery. Uh, is an adaptogen, meaning that um, 
It's anti-inflammatory. It sort of adapts to whatever the body needs at the time. It's neuroprotective, memory enhancing, sleep inducing. Uh, so it's really great to take um, in the evening. Helps with stress levels as well, which is very prominent with that stress sandwich that we that we um, deal with in our 40s and 50s. And uh, 250 to 600 migs per day uh, for sleep specifically. It seems that that kind of the higher limit, like that 600 migs per day, is best. You can either take it all at night or divide up in two doses through the day. And then the other one um, that you can take during the day would be rhodiola rosacea, also known to help increase progesterone. So um, what we know about stress, and we talked about this in the progesterone masterclass, is that it reduces progesterone levels due to cortisol uh, release. And then, of course, when cortisol is released, it suppresses ovulation as a protective mechanism, right? Like we don't want to get pregnant um, in a very high stress situation. Um, so rhodiola helps to support the stress response, um, which is going to, you know, it kind of explains why it, what helps to um, improve progesterone. So 50 megs is really good um, for anti-stress, and like for extreme fatigue, you can take it up much higher doses as well. So um, like 300 to 600 mg uh, in there as well, milligrams, that milligram range too. All right. So those are some of the supplements that I like for, um, uh, for progesterone uh, balancing as well. Um, and for those of you that are experiencing, so the other, the other thing that came that, that was very, uh, very much um, a... Uh, point of concern was depression um, and sleep. And so I want you to understand that perimenopause is a risk, is a period of risk for all women, um, either those who have never previously experienced depression uh, or those who have because of some of these wildly oscillating levels of hormones um, the and particularly estrogen and progesterone, this can kind of create a vulnerability to depression um, for those with and without a history of it. So um, poor sleep obviously can worsen mood, worsen affect, worsen the ability of the frontal lobe uh, to inhibit those lower brain centers that we that we mentioned. So we want to be thinking about um, some of the strategies that we've been talking about around sleep hygiene and some of the supplements that we've been talking about, taking alcohol out. Um, of the taking alcohol out of the uh, out of the mix on a regular basis to be helping with better sleep as well. Certainly, if you are depressed, you should be going to talk to uh, your primary healthcare provider for options. Um, often, what we find in the literature is things like resistance training, so heavy resistance training and exercise in general, so movement in general, has been shown to be at least as effective, but more often more effective than an antidepressant for the treatment of depression. And I don't say this to poo-poo anybody who's on an antidepressant. I don't say this um, with the message of don't take an antidepressant. Like if you need it to get you through this sort of acute time in your life, by all means, if it helps, um, you know, certainly be speaking to your, to your medical professional about that. However, uh, in terms of a long-term strategy for depression, we want to be thinking about how to manage it and how to manage it is not just managing the side effects from taking a drug. The managing it is actually being, taking control of your life um, and figuring out what work needs to be done. So that might mean speaking to a counselor, that might mean speaking to a therapist. Um, it certainly involves exercise. And I say that with a lot of confidence in that, you know, several, several studies, meta-analyses and the like 
have shown that the efficacy of ex ex uh, exercise is at least equal to, but in most cases, better than uh, the antidepressants. And you don't get the side effects that happen uh, with taking antidepressants. So um, I have had the, um, uh, you might call it the privilege um, of watching um, women taper off or trying to get off antidepressants. And I'll tell you, it is a wicked ride. It is very, very difficult to get off of uh, some of these drugs. So if you're able to avoid it entirely, that's better. Uh, if you're not able to, and you need it as a crutch to help you through, by all means, when we break our legs, we wear, we, we use crutches to get around and this can be kind of a crutch, but thinking about the long-term, how we want to be supporting our neurotransmitters and our physiology long-term exercise is where it's at. So for perimenopausal women and menopausal women, thinking about movement that brings you joy. Um, so that might be tennis, that might be Pilates, that might be walking. And then if you don't love resistance training, you got to find a way to love it. That is what I wanted to say about depression as well. Um, and then there was a couple of questions around being really hot at night. Uh, again, we talked about this being under the influence of kind of oscillating levels of estrogen. So this will be the kind of the last point that we'll make. But for your, uh, if you are hot at night, one of the best things that you can do, certainly is like to, if you can reduce the temperature of the of the room. Okay. So make the room cold. Um, but for your extremities, like your hands and your feet, uh, if you warm them up, so I like to wear warm, fuzzy socks, uh, at night. Um, it will bring the heat kind of to the extremity. And of course, when you're sort of charming the blood from the core to the extremities, that's going to lower your core body temperature. And then you're going to, um, that's going to help you fall asleep. So another couple other ways that you can cool your core body temperature if you're feeling hot overnight is take a hot shower or a hot bath or a sauna right before bedtime, like an hour or two before bedtime, because what happens, of course, is that you have this rebound effect, right? So you get super, super hot core body temperature goes high, 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 and then you get out of the hot shower or out of the sauna, and then your body tries to core correct it, right? It tries to correct it by lowering your core body temperature. So it will plummet once you get out of it. And then in real life, that's going to, you know, translate to you falling asleep faster. So always hot shower, hot bath, sauna if it's available to you. Um, if your thermostat's on a timer, uh, get the thermostat down to about, you know, call it 65 to 68 degrees Fahrenheit or for the rest of the world, you know, 15 to 18 degrees centigrade. And then if you're able to, in the last kind of uh, hour of your sleep or even like half an hour of your sleep, if you're able to program your thermostat to kind of warm the room up a little bit, uh, that actually also follows our natural core body temperature. So we want to fall asleep cold and wake up warm. So if you're able to kind of change the thermostat that way, I think that that would really help too. And this is, this is also why people love hot drinks, right? So when we, in the morning, so we have like a cup of coffee, even if it's summertime, we have a cup of coffee, uh, we have hot tea, you know, things like things of that nature in the morning, because it's naturally, it sort of naturally goes with our core body temperature, um, fluctuations. 
So um, that would be if you're hot at night. The other thing that you can do is get a fan, right? So you can put a fan in the room or direct the fan to be on you uh, for the evening so that if you are uh, sweating or you're really uh, hot overnight that the fan can kind of cool you down. Uh, moisture, wicking, moisture wicking sheets as well, uh, very important. So things like bamboo or organic cotton, that kind of thing, they will sort of wick away, if you will, uh, any heat from you. Uh, also very important um, as well. And then there's also things like, uh, you know, I don't have any affiliation with them, but things like eight sleep mattresses and chili pads where you can um, modify the temperature. Uh, it's sort of like an overlay that you put on top of your mattress and it can you can program it to heat or cool depending on your preferences. So if you have a sleep partner who doesn't run, uh, who doesn't run as hot as you, they can they can manage their side of the bed, let's say with a temperature that they like. Okay, so talked a lot today about the uh, what happens when we sleep, the consequences of going through perimenopause, how we are more vulnerable to sleep disturbances, hormonal fluctuations, uh, mood, affect, and some of the strategies to sleeping better. I hope that you found this podcast useful. And if you have, I'm going to plant a little Easter egg in here for you. Share it with your girlfriends or share it with someone that you love that you think would be that would benefit from some of the information that I've prepared here for you. Um, and of course, like and subscribe if you want to leave a rating for the show. Uh, I read all of them. We get them from all around the world and they really just, I, I read every single one of them. So the good, the bad, the ugly. You tell me that I don't have good audio. I invest in audio equipment. You tell me that you love this topic. I'll do more on that topic. All the things. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you found this useful and we'll talk to you next time. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.